Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Our scripture reading this morning will be from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep those rules without, pre- without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that cannot remain hidden. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I have uh, never been so relieved to be in a state uh, that doesn't understand college football more than uh, today, and so much so that most of you probably don't even know what I'm talking about, so let's just get started. Um, so four years ago, this past July, uh, I came on a mission trip with our sending church back in Birmingham, Valley Dell, and I had the opportunity to preach that Sunday. Uh, New King was meeting at Mater Christi, and Ben and Tiffany were sitting just like dead center front row, and they were just beaming with their smiles that just make you say yes to anything. And the whole time, I just preached in dread because I thought, oh no, they think that we're going to move up here. And uh, joke's on us because they were right. Um, but I just wanted to take the opportunity uh, and thank you uh, for the kind ways that you have included Amanda and I uh, as a part of New King in the past two and a half months. Uh, we are absolutely delighted that God has called us here uh, to Burlington to serve alongside you. Uh, and we think that God is doing re- something really special uh, in this place. And so it's really a privilege uh, to be here during this season. So we're going to go ahead and jump right in uh, to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're looking at verse 17 through 25. So last week, Ben preached the first 16 verses of uh, chapter 5 and introduced the theme of honor that covers that passage, the passage that I'm going to preach today, and then he'll wrap up this kind of section about honor in the church. And so I'm just going to be completely honest. I'm going to straight up still uh, some of the things that he said last week, because I just think they're helpful uh, for continuing in this idea of honor. So last week, Ben told us that the definition of honor is high respect or great esteem. To honor someone is to highly value or to revere them. 
And so Ben helped us understand that unless we learn how to honor each other in this place, when we are together, uh, when we're in community together, then we will never learn to rightly honor God. And so as we think about chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, let us think about how we can honor each other, but ultimately how that teaches us to honor God. So as I've studied and prayed through this passage, when I look at it, when I read it over and over again, I think there are two main points. But there's a lot of subpoints and a lot of like asides that happen in it. So if you're a note taker or if maybe you just struggle to listen, I'm just going to go ahead and I'm going to let you know what my points are so that you can follow along, okay? So the first one is in verse 17. It says, The elders who are good leaders are to be, to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So my first point is going to be that, that we need to give elders double honor. Amen. The second is in verse 22. It says, Don't be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder, and don't share in the sins of others, but keep yourself pure. So secondly, we're going to talk about giving elders double consideration. So let's dive into point one. So again, verse 17, the elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So before we jump into this concept of double honor and we flesh that out and we decide what does that mean, I want us to ask the question, to consider the question, what or who is a good elder? What's a good leader look like in the church? So I read the CSB. That's the translation I use. It says good leader. Amanda read from the ESV. It says those who rule well. Some of you might use the NIV. It says the elders who direct the affairs of the church well. So it should be assumed that these elders that Timothy or that Paul is talking about in 1 Timothy meet the qualifications that we've already talked about in chapter 3. So these guys are above reproach. They're the husband of one wife, they're self-controlled, they're sensible, they're respectable, they're hospitable, they're able to teach, they're not excessive drinkers, they're not bullies, they're not quarrelsome, they're not greedy, they manage their households well, they're not new converts, and they have good reputations among outsiders. But more importantly, those who are worthy of double honor lead or rule or direct well. So just like these guys, their qualification says that they can manage their household well, these are elders who manage the household of God well. So we've discussed before that Paul is writing to Timothy in order to teach Timothy how the church should conduct themselves when they are together. And so elders lead that conduct. They teach the Word of God. They have nothing to do with pointless or silly myths or false teaching. These are all things that Paul has talked about. They train themselves in godliness in order to train the church in godliness. They set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. They give attention to the public reading, to exhortation, to teaching. They persevere in order to save themselves and in their hearers. hearers. So it might be helpful to think through, how do our elders here at New King lead us? Well, there's a lot of ways, but some of those are they care for your souls. They oversee and direct the ministries of the church. They set vision and direction. They prepare for worship. They make sure the right people are taking care of the property when things happen. They plan and prepare the preaching calendar. They write and give sermons. 
Uh, they oversee the finances. They raise up new leaders. And I can stand up here all afternoon and just tell you things that your elders do. And so that, there's quite a bit of managing that goes on in the household of God. And good elders manage the household well. And so after Paul give, uh, says to give elders double honor, he says, especially to those who preach and teach. So why is that? What's unique about preaching and teaching elders? Well, the Greek word that Paul uses for hard work means to toil or to labor. It's the same idea a worker or a farmer puts into his work at the farm. So admittedly, I'm like the farthest thing from a farmer, okay? So the closest I get to farming is when I cut my grass and I have these like vast dreams of buying this magnificent farm in Charlotte and like I'm just gonna like work the land as though that's something that I could even possibly do. But I have seen a farm and so I kind of get the idea of what happens there. So if you have a farm, you have to prepare the soil, you have to plant, you have to make sure it gets enough water, you have to... uh, uh, just harvest it at the right time, and you, you do all of this hard work to make sure that you get the best harvest possible. And so just in the same way, preaching and teaching in the church is hard work also. Good elders work vigorously and laboriously at what they do. It may not always be physical, but every Sunday when you sit there and one of us comes up here and preaches for 30 or 40 or 45 minutes, depending on the size of your mustache... <laughs> You're listening to a sermon that has taken somewhere between 12 and 20 hours of study and writing. 12 and 20 hours to do this. That's a lot of studying. How many of you just wake up and are like, man, I'd love to give a presentation that took me 20 hours to study for? It's hard work. And so then add to that the weightiness of the subject at hand, the living, active Word of God. Y'all, we believe in this book. We believe in the God who wrote it. We believe that God is speaking to us through this book to you. And when we step up here and we give you a message, we believe that the great, sovereign, mighty God of the universe is speaking to you. We believe that this ancient book is, as Hebrews 4.12, living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart. We believe it says 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 says that it's inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We care deeply about you. We love you. We take this seriously. Believe me, there is absolutely zero good content that I have to give you that's not from this book. <coughs> so to summarize, The conditions for double honor are elders who are good leaders, especially those who preach and teach, and they, like Jesus who is the good shepherd, are the good under-shepherds of the church. And so here's the point. Give elders double honor. So what is double honor? Again, last week Ben set us up. So remember, honor is high respect or great esteem. It means to value or to revere. And that's certainly what Paul means, but in this passage, he gives us two really good takeaways of how we give double honor. So the first is through payment, and the second is through protection. So let's talk about payment. In verse 18, 
It says, For the scriptures say, Do not muzzle an ox it is, uh, while it is treading out grain, and the worker is worthy of his wages. So he uses two verses, the one about ox, our oxen is Deuteronomy 24, 5. And then he paraphrases Luke 10, 7 and Matthew 10, 10 to talk about a worker being worthy of his wages. So this isn't the only time that Paul addresses paying pastors. He does it again in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, starting in verse 9. He says, For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it treads out grain. Is God really concerned about oxen? Isn't he really saying it for our sake? Yes, this is written for our sake, because he who plows ought to plow in hope. And he who thrushes should thrush in hope of sharing the crop. If we have some spiritual things for you, is it too much if we reap material benefits from you? Nevertheless, we have not made us use of this right and said we endure everything so that we will not hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who perform the temple services eat the food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the offerings of the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. So twice in the New Testament, Paul talks about this concept of paying pastors, and he uses this verse about oxen. So why does he do that? Well, if God cares for the oxen that pull the plow enough that he commands his people to allow those oxen to eat while they're working, how much more does he care for the shepherds of the church? And then Paul goes on to quote Jesus, who says, a worker is worth his wages. That is what you put in in work, you should get paid for that work. And so your pastors work hard, and therefore they deserve to get paid. If an ox can eat freely while it plows, but those who minister the word don't get paid, they're being treated worse than a beast. Not only if, but what you pay your pastors reveal, their, reveal your heart. It reveals how much they value the word of God and the proclamation of the gospel in the church. How a church cares for their leaders ought to display the gospel. When the world walks into this room, there should be a clear indication that we love one another. And we go out of our way to care for one another. It's, the, it's one way that we can live out Romans 12, 10, by outdoing one another and showing honor. Further, it shows how a congregation values your own money and your possessions. A church that doesn't adequately compensate their pastor may not be a generous church. They may love their wealth more than they love the word of God in their lives. So New King, don't be that church. But I have good news for you. You're not that church. You pay your pastors really well. Uh, your pastors think that you pay your pastors really well. So let me take the opportunity to applaud you and, and thank you for your generosity so that your pastors can have money to live. I think it's important also, though, to acknowledge uh, that there are pastors and leaders and evangelical celebrities that 100% take advantage of passages like this in the New Testament. Uh, it wasn't that long ago, I think it was just back in the summer, that a pastor in Brooklyn was robbed at gunpoint while he was delivering a sermon. And between he and his wife, uh, the person that was robbing them made away with over a million dollars in jewelry. That's not what Paul is talking about. Paul is not talk, talking about opulence, right? And in fact, when he gets to chapter 6, he'll talk about the dangers of materialism. 
And so just one more thing before we move on. Maybe you've never considered uh, what it is that a pastor should get paid or, or how a pastor should get paid. And Paul isn't being prescriptive here. There's nothing here that Paul is saying, you need to give this amount of money or you need to give this percentage. Uh, but I think that there's some guidelines that happen. And, and these are just my own thoughts. This is free. Take it for what it is. Um, but I think here are some questions that we should be asking when we, when we think about paying pastors. Uh, so I think we should consider, what does the average person in the congregation make? What's the cost of living in your area? How much does it cost to buy or rent a house? Uh, does the pastor's salary cover the cost of insurance, bills, food, gas, providing for his wife and children? Uh, can they still take adequate vacations? Can they save for the future? How much do you value the word of God in your life? How much do you value the management of God's household? Is it worth paying your pastor so he and his family can live comfortably without the worries of the world closing in on them? Let me encourage you to err always on the side of comfort and care. I'm not asking for a Porsche or a lake house, so if the Spirit leads you, let him. <laughs> I just simply think uh, that Paul wants elders to have genuine concern for their people, and in turn, their people have genuine concern for them. So we looked at payment. Let's talk about protection. The other way we show honor to elders is through protection. So look at verse 19 and 20. It says, don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. Publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will be afraid. Elders are to be protected from accusations and from sin. So let's talk about accusations. Church leaders, pastors, elders who are highly visible in the church are, as Brian Chapel says, tragically vulnerable to the adverse actions of the disorderly, the malevolent, the ill-willed, and the whispering gossip. In our fallen natures, we are prone to automatically believe the worst about people, particularly people who are in leadership. So think about your own life for a moment. How many times have you just assumed the worst about someone? Not even necessarily someone in leadership. How many times have you assumed the worst about your spouse or about your child or a friend or a roommate and you turned out to be wrong? This happened quite a bit in the early days of our marriage. Uh, so growing up, my mom would cook and she would eat dinner. And at the end of dinner, she'd go, well, I cleaned it. Somebody else has got to clean it up. So I cooked it. Somebody else has got to clean it up. And so me or my dad or my sister would dutifully get up and we'd clean the kitchen. And so when we first got married, Amanda would cook, we'd eat, and I would get up and just clean the kitchen. That's what I had been taught to do. And about halfway through, Amanda would always cut in and start cleaning the kitchen, and I would get highly offended. What is she doing? She thinks I'm doing this wrong. I know how to load a dishwasher. I mean, I was like 30-something when we got married. I've done this before. But that wasn't her motive at all. She was just simply jumping in to help because she doesn't sit on the sidelines. That's not her personality. Uh, so did I assume the best, though? I didn't. Uh, did I calmly and rationally communicate with her over this? No, not at all. <laughs> did I one day blow up over something absolutely ridiculous? Yeah, I, I did. But Paul is primarily warning against ridiculous or meaningless false accusations. To think, think about where this falls within the letter. He's just finished talking about the care of widows. There's been um, a spot of contention throughout the New Testament. We've seen that. 
People get worked up because this widow or that widow isn't getting the same care that this widow or that widow is getting. Uh, and, and so we've seen this. Uh, most notably in Acts 6, when the apostles appoint deacons to take care of, uh, to serve the church so that they can preach the word. And so don't hear me say that taking care of widows isn't important. It absolutely is. We talked about that last week. Uh, But the problem is no one is intentionally not doing what they should be doing. So rumors get started and false accusations come. So in 2,000 years of church history, that hasn't changed. So I remember growing up, my pastor, when I was in high school, he was just really prone uh, to baseless accusations. He was the kindest man. He was just a good old boy from small town Alabama. And he had a shepherd's heart, and he loved his church. And there's this grumpy old lady. Her name was Zelda. God bless her. And um, Brother Joel could never do anything right in Zelda's eyes, right? So she'd go to her Sunday school class, and she would get all of her friends just riled up. Brother Joel didn't say this, or Brother Joel did say this, or Brother Joel brought those teenagers to work in my yard, and now my crepe myrtle is all wonky. And so (laughs) she would just stir up uh, her friends over nothing. And my question to you is, are, are you prone to do this? Has Ben or Eric or Lucius looked at you the wrong way while they were preaching or leading worship? Has Ben failed to shake your hand one Sunday morning? Have you heard from someone they said such and such to someone else all without talking to them directly or making assumptions? John Calvin once said, As soon as any charge is made against ministers of the word, it is believed as surely and firmly as if it had already been proved. This happens not only because a higher standard of integrity is required from them, but because Satan makes most people, in fact, nearly everyone, over-credulous so that without investigation, they eagerly condemn their pastors whose good name they ought to be defending. So Paul tells Timothy, don't listen to it unless you have two or three witnesses, and not witnesses that didn't see or hear it, but actual witnesses. And so this comes from the idea, this idea comes from the law of Moses in, in Deuteronomy 19.15. It says, one witness cannot establish an iniquity or sin against a person. Whatever that person has done, a fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Honor the elders by protecting them from false and baseless accusations. Accusations must be proven to be true. So let, let me be clear. Every single elder at New King is a sinner. Every man that's being trained up at New King and being prepared to be an elder, an elder is a sinner. You will be disappointed in us at one point or another. But as someone who's new to New King, completely from the outside, who spent two and a half months now in the trenches with these guys, Ben and Eric and Lucius are upstanding men. They love the Lord. They love his word. They love his church, which is you. They think and pray intentionally about how to lead you. They care for you. They desire that you follow Jesus. Do they sin and make mistakes? Yeah, of course they do. And they will continue to do that until King Jesus comes and takes us all into the new kingdom. But until he does, let's determine to live out 1 Corinthians 13. In verse 4 it says, Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It's not boastful. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking, it's not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. 
It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This isn't just a verse that we bring up because someone is getting married. It teaches us, it teaches us how to love each other. It teaches us how to outdo one another in showing honor. Now, I think it's important to just step aside for a minute and, and address something. Paul, in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, is talking about good leaders. These are upstanding men who work hard. Those who, like Paul says in chapter 4, their progress is evident to all. So he has in mind accusations that often end up not being true. And if they are true, they can be dealt with quickly. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But unfortunately, there are churches where bad men become leaders. And the scripture is clear, though that God loves and protects those who are vulnerable. So don't read this passage or hear me say that serious grievances or abuse should not immediately be reported. Uh, we at, at New King, we think the scripture supports that, and we want to protect people. We take that seriously. We want to live righteous, holy lives, which calls us to courageously address hard things when they happen. So understand what this passage is talking about. It's not, it's not talking about serious allegations. And we're considering how elders are, are shown honor through protection. So we've addressed accusations, not backed up by witnesses. Now let's consider how they should be protected from sin. Verse 20 says, publicly re rebuke those who sin so that the rest will be afraid. Immediately following Paul's charge to Timothy to verify accusations extensively, he tells Timothy to per publicly rebuke those who do sin. So what does that mean? What does, it, what does it look like? So we've already clarified that elders sin. It's going to happen guaranteed. So Paul here is addressing what happens when accusations turn out to be true. And I think it's helpful to understand that Paul's addressing those sins that are in one of the, the following three categories. They are public in nature, they directly affect the congregation, um, or they're repetitive or unrepentant sins in an elder's life. I think that we would all agree that when an elder gets mad because someone cuts him off in traffic, it's not obligated the next Sunday to bring him up and publicly rebuke him. Now, all sin is grievous and it must be dealt with, uh, but not all sin needs to be dealt with in public. I think Jesus points to that in Matthew 18 when he talks about uh, re restoration and how it starts in private. I remember one year uh, when I was in seminary, I served at a church as an intern. And my very first Sunday, uh, the pastor got up and he confessed that in a business meeting, uh, he hadn't reported something truthfully. So it was a small church. They voted on literally everything. And he omitted some facts so that they wouldn't ask questions and that they would just vote. And it was something inconsequential. And I remember leaders got up and publicly rebuked him. Um, and it was just a really humbling experience. Uh, and it was a really a realistic of view of sin and, and how it happens in all of our lives. And it was a warning against sin not to do it. And so that's what Paul has in mind here. Rebuking sin calls the sinning elder to repentance, but more importantly, it protects other elders from being tempted to sin in the same way or to fall into the same pattern of sin. And so the elders give, uh, God gives to a church are to be an example to the church. If their lives are wrought with sin, how can they be an example? They can't. 
they must be protected from and encouraged not to sin in order to live godly lives. And so publicly rebuking does one more thing as well. It gives witness to the truth. In 1 Timothy 3.15, we see that the church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. And when we don't uphold the truth, we completely deny the identity of the church. We must be faithful regardless of how difficult it must be. So let me just highlight one more thing before we move on. I said earlier that I don't think Paul has in mind serious accusations. The reason I think that is because he omits removing an elder from office. So verse 20 only says to publicly rebuke them. So there will be instances when sin disqualifies an elder. In this particular case, I think Paul is just addressing sin. And he's, he has this hopeful look that elders sin, they should be rebuked, and they should continue being elders. That's not always true, but I think in this case, that's what he's talking about. And so Paul describes two instances in which we can show elders double honor. And he follows that up with a really stern warning. So look in verse 21. It says, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice. Do nothing uh, out of favoritism. In the days of the Roman Empire, when this letter was written, Roman law favored the powerful and the wealthy. The church is not a good old boys club. It's not a place where status matters. This is not a place to consider your tax bracket, your profession, your upbringing. The church is completely countercultural. Paul brings before Timothy a charge to observe giving honor without prejudice or favoritism, and he does so with three witnesses, God the Father, Christ Jesus, and the elect angels, all of whom have their eye on the church and see what's going on. Christ Jesus is the true shepherd of his church. He is leading. He sees. He knows. Do nothing out of prejudice or favoritism. Give honor freely to elders. Give payment freely to elders. Give protection freely to elders. Give rebuke freely to elders. Do nothing out of prejudice or favoritism. God is not partial, and those who manage the household of God shouldn't be either. I just want to share one last quote. Uh, when I was reading, uh, this was really convicting and kind of funny too, so I'm going to share it with you. Uh, one commentator quoted Calvin, and he said, And indeed, The man who is not shaken out of his carelessness and laziness by the thought that the government of the church is conducted under the eye of God and his angels must be worse than stupid. (laughs) Okay, so 30 minutes in, and I've successfully gotten through my first point. So the second one isn't nearly as long, so just buckle in. So here's the second point. Give elders double double consideration. So look at verse 22. It says, Don't be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder, and don't share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So I merely mean by double consideration, don't appoint elders too quickly. I just wanted them to sound similar. So that's what I'm talking about. So Paul here is expanding on a concept he's already covered. So in chapter 3, he tells Timothy uh, this list of qualifications for elders. So we've already talked about those. But in that list, he says that elders shouldn't be new converts. So the charge here then is not only to not let them be new converts, but further, there should be time to assess if a man truly has all the qualifications of an elder. So why is that? 
I think if we all answered the question, immediately our first answer would be that installing or appointing an elder who isn't ready could be disastrous for the church. It's, it's just a bad idea. And I think that that's right. It, it would, could be very bad. But it seems that Paul has something else in mind, uh, specifically uh, how it would affect Timothy and the other elders if they were too quickly to appoint uh, the wrong guy. So Paul warns Timothy not to share in the sins of others and to keep himself pure. It would seem that Paul is saying to Timothy that to pre- prematurely appoint elders or to appoint elders who are not actually qualified is to share in those elders' sins. Unqualified leadership compromises the rest of the leadership. So first, careful selection is for the benefit of those choosing, specifically Timothy, uh, but more generally, already established, established elders. And second, careful selection is for the protection of the church. When elders appoint new elders who are not actually qualified, they share in their sins. That's why we do what we do here at New King. Becoming an elder takes time. We don't just appoint elders because at first glance they seem elderly, Right? So if you've been listening to the For Your Joy podcast, you know that Ben and Lucius have been uh, talking about the leadership of Saul and David. So if you think about Saul, uh, how did he get appointed king? Because he looked kingly. And what, what ended up happening? It was a complete disaster, right? He looked kingly, but he was not kingly at all. And I, don't, I could pull up our elders here, and you could see for yourself, we don't appoint elders based on looks. We don't even consider it. We take time to appoint them. And that's intentional. We want to make sure that they meet the qualification of elders. And one way we do that is by giving them opportunities to preach and teach. You're witnessing that right now. So why do we do that? Because 1 Timothy 5.22 says, don't appoint elders too quickly. And so the main point here is that we need to Take all the time, care, and due diligence necessary to make sure a man is qualified to the best of our knowledge. Because if we don't, we share in his sins. We invite disaster into the church. So now, let's look at verse 23. Don't continue drinking only water, but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. What is going on, Paul? Uh, So it seems out of place. But we trust that uh, the Bible is the inspired word of God, that the Holy Spirit wrote it through men and their personalities, and so it's just not flippantly thrown in. And I think that the most plausible answer to why it's here comes from the following verses. So just take a pen and put it in Timothy's wine, and we'll come back to that in just a second. So let's jump to verse 24 and 25. Some people's sins are obvious, preceding them to judgment, but the sins of others surface later. Likewise, good works are obvious, and those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden. The appointment of elders must come after men have proven their, their character and their qualifications. But more imper- importantly, it should come after elders have prayerfully discerned uh, if, a, if a guy should be an elder. So Paul is saying here that sometimes we know people's sins. They're obvious. They're out in the open. Sometimes we... We know people's good works because they're out in the open. Ultimately, however, whether we know or we don't know, they're all known to God and will be dealt with in His wisdom and His grace and His justice. So there will be times when the church makes 
mistakes. There will be times when elders are appointed that shouldn't have been uh, appointed. And there will be times when good men are overlooked and not appointed, but they should have been. But ultimately, what Paul is telling Timothy is that God is in control, and Timothy needs to rest in his sovereignty. So back to verse 23. Why the wine? No one knows. No commentary I read agrees. Not one person even came close to agreeing. So I'm just going to pick the one I think is most plausible. So here it is. These are very, very weighty matters. And, And Timothy is stressed. And in an attempt to keep himself pure, which is good, he is frequently getting sick. I, I think some of us have been there. Uh, if you're an Enneagram guy, I'm, si- I'm a six. I, I've been there. Um, <laughs> this is who we are. Um, but Paul, in a very fatherly way, says, Hey, Timothy, you'll feel much better if you stop drinking uh, this water and you drink just a little bit of wine. That's, that's not because alcohol makes us everything, everything better, right? That's, we would say that that's not true at all. But what he's saying in the day and time that Timothy is living in is that, that it's medicinal, right? So just calm yourself a little bit. Have some wine and go to bed. Uh, it won't fix his problem, but it may calm his stomach. So ultimately, Timothy and, and us, we need to rest in the sovereignty of God. So we pray for discernment, and we trust that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And so as we wrap up, I think it would be helpful for us to discuss just some really practical ways we can apply this passage to our lives, right? It feels really heavy towards how elders should conduct themselves. And maybe you're sitting there, and you're like, I'm not an elder, and I'm never going to be an elder, so what do I do with this? Well, I think it is written for you, but also I think that there are other ways uh, that we can honor, give double honor to elders more than just is, is listed to here. So Amanda and I kind of talked through this, and I prayed through it. So I'm going to give you nine, I know that's odd, nine suggestions of ways that you can give double honor to your elders. So the first is come to church. Good job. (laughs) Make the gathering together weekly a priority in your life. Number two, when you come, come prepared. How is your heart and where is your mind? Are you prepared for worship? Did you bring a Bible? Did you go to bed at a reasonable time? Did you get up early enough to have a smooth morning so you're not rushing out frantically, having said who knows what to your family? Number three, tithe. There are many reasons that we tithe, ultimately because everything that God has given us, we, uh, we recognize that through tithing. But if you want to pay your pastors and you want to honor him through a salary, you've got to tithe. That's how that works. Number four, encourage your pastors face-to-face through a text, through a phone call. Do something for them. Number five, don't discourage your pastors. Do you know when your pastors are most vulnerable? After they spent 20 hours studying to preach to you, and then after they preach, you come up to them and you have something careless to say to them. Don't discourage your pastors. Now, that's not to say that there aren't hard conversations that need to happen, but don't make it a habit. Number six, don't assume the worst. Don't listen to gossip. Don't accept accusations without witnesses. Number seven, serve the Lord by serving the church. Church isn't something you consume. This isn't a buffet for you. It's something you give your whole life to. Number eight, live out the word of God. Nothing encourages a pastor uh, to keep doing what he's doing, to keep staying in the trenches like seeing lives changed by the word of God. And lastly, I would encourage you to fill in the blank. Go home this afternoon, pray throughout the week. 
What are ways that you can show double honor to your pastors? I'm going to pray as we close. If you're getting baptized, you can uh, sneak out during that um, and go get changed and ready for that. Uh, so let's, uh, let's pray. God, we trust, we know your word tells us that Jesus is uh, the good shepherd. And we want to live lives that honor him. And so we, we know that when we gather as a church, we're putting on this drama of sorts. And so we, we, we pray that you would teach us how to honor our elders so that we know how to honor Jesus. God, we thank you for your word that you speak to us that it is, it is living and active, and, and we pray that you would use it today to mold us and to change us and to make us look more like Jesus.